and welcome to episode 72 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, August 19th, 2021. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Not too bad. It is back to school season. It is. The kids are all in school. So exciting. Oh my stars. So exciting. How are you? It's good. Well, boy, one is only on day one, so it's not, we haven't fully got to experience all the joy that is children at school. We are back at it with the full lunch report and teacher impressions. Yep. Do they have any homework yet? Oh yeah, homework gripes are in full swing, although nothing too, too hearty yet, but that'll come. We'll see. I'll be interested to see boy one. So he's a senior and they're doing a four by four schedule. So he has four classes the first semester, but they'd cover a whole year's worth of work. Oh boy. And two of those are AP classes. So I feel like the homework is going to be coming hard and fast because yeah, good luck to him. (laughs) Well, my younger son is taking the history of art history of art class like an intro and I'm so excited for it and he is so not excited for it and it's he's fulfilling a prereq and we were talking at dinner the other night how I have a tremendous amount of art history classes under my belt and how maybe he can come home and just share with me well today we looked at Greek or Roman copies of Greek sculptures or something like that. And he thought that that was a terrible idea. And (laughs) I'm I'm welcome to browse through his textbook at my leisure. It does sound fun. (laughs) I agree. I'd love to audit it. (laughs) (laughs) If only it was still on Zoom. I know, then I totally could. Uh, That might be an option, actually. Who knows? Who knows? All right, well. We need to talk about our stuff because we we have exciting things happening in our own lives that are not just going back to school. We will have on the needles, on the easel, on the table, on the nightstand, and bingo, we're getting down to the end. I think we have one more episode where we'll be talking about it before it shuts down. Oh, good. I have a... Although I I think like that we... squinch more time than I thought. Yes, you do. Okay. All of my remaining items are cooking items. Ooh. (laughs) I think a lot of mine are too. Anyway, we can talk about that at the end. Okay. Right now, on the needles. I have another finished object. You're on fire. I am. Actually, that's a bad metaphor, given our state, uh, but yeah. carry on. True facts. I finished the Eddie sweater by Isabel Kramer. <laughs> that was pretty much all I worked on. I just went crazy and wanted to get it done. This is in the Hugh Loco Merino sock in the Eclipse colorway, which was like a special pre-order thing. This was the, the gray with the flex? The gray with so, all the flex. I got to the sleeves. I knit about an inch past the sleeves. Tried it on. Not right. Which was fine. I mean, that's that's what happens. That's why you try it on as you go. So I ripped it back. And what I had done, because I'm pretty sure that I did not swatch. So I was like, eh, we'll knit this size. Because usually I have to go down a needle. So I figured if I just knit it in the called for needle size, my gauge would be a little bit too big. Anyway, my fabric would turn out bigger than I wanted. So that if I knit the size that I thought would work, it would work. 
And if it was a little bit big, then that was because I was a little bit in between two of the sizes. Mm-hmm. And I'm I was always in between two sizes. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> there are only so many sizes. So then I finally checked my gauge because at this point I had, you know, the top half of a sweater, which is a pretty good gauge swatch. And I was right on. So bizarre. Messed with me mentally, but it was okay because then I said, oh, well, then I can just knit this other size and it will be perfect. And it was. So I was super excited and I kept, so I just, so I pulled it back, added some more rows to the top and then separated the sleeves off. Started knitting the round forever. It was um, like 15 inches of mostly stockinette. Every two inches or so, you do a little slip stitch ribbing pattern that looks really cool. It's it definitely looks more textured. If you if you, your yarn was solid, mine is very multicolored, so it doesn't entirely show up, but it's there. I can tell, and it yeah. made the whole knitting a little yeah. more interesting. And then it has um, a curved hem which is really nice. And then I actually did the sleeves before I did most of the body because I had two skeins of yarn and they were pretty close in color. But with hand dyed, you can never be quite sure. And I didn't want to get to a point where I held up the sweater at the end and had a big stripe in the middle. So I did the top part in one skein. And then once I got a little bit into the body, I started alternating every row. And so then eventually I'd run out of one and just continue with the second. Except that the sleeves... If the skeins were in fact different and I didn't do them with the first yarn, then my sleeves would have a weird stripe in the middle of them. Definite line of, this is where you changed yarn. We don't like that. (laughs) And I'd already started knitting with both yarns. My first skein, I ended up turning it upside down because I had a center pole cake so that I could use the yarn from the outside to knit the sleeves. They're really short sleeves. They're like five rows. They're very very short sleeves. So that worked out. So then my sleeves were done. And this was magical because then I got to the end and I was done. Usually when you're knitting a sweater, if you knit the body, then you knit the sleeves. So you knit the body and you feel great, but then you still have to do the sleeves. So it's a short sleeve? Yep. Oh, fun. Yeah. I hope you can wear that soon. I, I do need to block it just because it's a little bit It's a good practice. It's a good practice. You know, it gets all squished up and a little wrinkled when you're knitting and the stitches aren't quite even and so that just it just makes it look so much nicer but I tried it on the neckline fits great the sleeves fit great now you know around the armholes the opening is good it didn't end up quite as loose as the samples but it's fine it's plenty comfortable it fits well the length is good I think when I block it it'll loosen up a little bit more it's meant to be a very comfy casual t-shirty kind of thing so I'm super excited because, I don't know, usually you have a vision for a project and it doesn't quite turn out the way you want. This one is pretty much exactly what I hoped it would be. So, especially with variegated yarn, you never know Yeah. exactly how it's going to transfer from skein to, to fabric. So, hurrah. So, I was very excited. Yeah. And another finished object. And then I had, I don't know, half a day of thinking about what did I, what did I want to do next? And I've had like half of a year. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, because I finished it at eight o'clock at night. And then there wasn't anything that I had that I could work on right then. I was kind of watching some TV. Didn't want to start a whole new project. I didn't want to pull out my shawls that I have going are fairly complicated. I didn't have anything that was super mindless knitting. So I ended up kind of taking that night off. I think I read my book 
crazy craziness and then sort of thought about and I kept thinking that I wanted to work on my go tell the bees shawl that's the one that I've basically done the cast on still maybe half a row (laughs) someday I will I love the idea of having the lace border as the start what you start off with but in practice it means I'm just not it's really fiddly yeah I, I do still want to get it done some point I will get to it. But what I decided I wanted to do was my hide and peek sweater, which I think I had mentioned. The pattern came out not that the pattern came out in May of this year. Oh. Starlight Knitting Society did some kits for it. And that came across my Instagram feed. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, must have. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought it was a really cute sweater, looked totally doable. They had some great color combinations. And unlike you, I am not great with colors. So it was really nice to just see those options and be able to choose one. Fun. And I really like it. So it's a yoke sweater with a main color and then three contrast colors in an alternating diamond pattern. Triangles. It looks like Rick Rack. Yes, exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. So that's what it is. And it's by Maxim Sear. So I got it and I, my plan was to cast on almost right away. I think it was still during Sock Madness, so that didn't happen. And then I had this, then the four-day sweater knit along happened. And so anyway, but now I'm ready. And I was like, forget all these shells that I have and all these other projects and my my plans for, you know, knitting, languishing whips. No, I am. I'm casting this sweater on. So yeah, so that's kind of what I've been working on. It's It starts with a tubular cast on, which is that really funky one that ends up having that beautiful, edge, magical yeah, edge. I yeah, I love that edge. So that was super cool. The colors are interesting for me. So the, the yarn is from Farmer's Daughter, and it's, I think, a special yarn that she just does for the Starlight Knitting Society. They're um, a shop up in Portland, Portland, Oregon. So it's her Mayhem yarn, sport weight merino. So I don't, I'm not sure what exactly is special about it, but it's very nice to work with. I will say that. So my main color is Peikuni, which is kind of a brick red. And then my contrasts are Bad Rock, which is a gray, Dirty Little Dandelion, which is a yellow, and One Stab, which is pink. And they're all very sort of muted fall-like colors, Mm -hmm. which is not my usual color palette at all. I think on the website, the colors looked a little more jewel-toned, and they arrived. I'm like, hmm. But there's, I mean, they're gorgeous. So I've started, I've added in the second contrast color. So we shall see. And then my computer and my printer were not talking. So I sent the pattern to Simon to print out for me. And the model for the sweater, for the sample, is a guy. So he saw this and said, oh, are you making this for me? And I said, (laughs) uh, no. Did you want one? He's like, oh, that might be nice. So I might be knitting my first sweater for Simon. You've never knit him a sweater? No. We've talked about it before. And he's like, oh, maybe like something black. It's really plain. <laughs> like, no, we're not. No, that's, that's not. No, that's That's not pointless. Fun. So so I hadn't quite ever gotten around to figuring it out, but we'll be matching. I think different colors. I once knit Adam a hat in black Malabrigo, like a watch cap. Yeah. And... Then he washed it improperly, and it's not my fault. And I know <laughs> it's I'm the sl- I am the slowest knitter. I mean, I could do it and give it to him in ten years, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, then he would learn not to try right. things. 
Poorly. Poorly, yes. Yeah, he's gotten plenty of socks and hats for me over the years. But a sweater would be a good challenge. Yeah. And I've been thinking, yeah, I've definitely been thinking about it for a few years. So, but then he was, you know, he found a pattern he liked that that is that, that I actually am willing to knit. Right. So, right. Yeah. So, but I got to I have to do mine first. Well, so I can work out the kinks. That's still tremendous progress. Yeah. So, yeah, so that is all my knitting. My yarn update is that a friend of ours is now working at our most fabulous local yarn shop. Oh, yeah. Imagine it. And talking to her got me really excited to think about knitting something. So I am looking around to see what I want to knit. I thought I was going to knit that, like, bohemian cardigan. But now that I'm looking at it after so much time, I'm not as crazy about it as (laughs) I was when I first looked. And so I was looking at a a yoke sweater, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have different colors it just has different patterns and it comes in either a pullover or a cardigan and i love them both so we'll see cool do you remember what it was called it's called the anchor sweater oh yeah and it comes in like i said cardigan and pullover it's by petite knit Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go see my friend sally who is at the yarn shop and see what yarn might work for that or maybe i'll find another one i don't know nice i have need someone to come along oh yes i am probably available love it love it i have not been to a yarn store in a while that's where i'm at with my needles and stuff what is on the easel well i have filled up in the last week a sketchbook that i've been noodling around in since april i started it in april I didn't really do a ton April, May, June, and then in July, I really decided I need to be done of this sketchbook. It just, I wanted it full and I wanted to close it because I feel so much better than I did in April, May, mm. June, and and I felt like it was important to end the sketchbook on a great note. So the other day, I decided I'm going to really put effort into finishing this and just whatever is in my phone for references or whatever strikes my fancy. And so I was doing like four pages a day. Wow. Yeah, and it was so fun to fill it up. And in the background, I was listening to a couple talks with Elizabeth Gilbert, who's Mm -hmm. like the guru of be your creative self, yada, yada. And uh, she's wonderful. And I think it, it was just great to have this background pep talk happening and... I have finished the sketchbook, which feels amazing. And then I picked up a new sketchbook. The old one is a Talon sketchbook, which is kind of like creamy yellow pages. And the new one is nice and bright and white. Mm-hmm. And I already feel like, okay, what am I going to paint for a Christmas card? What am I, you know, nice. I just feel so fresh in this cool. new space. So... I've been painting along with, there's a group on Instagram called Still Here, Still Life. And once a week, they post a photo, an inspiration photo, and then tons of people do their take on that photo. It's always a still life. There's always fruit, it seems, or a tablescape or that kind of thing. And some people, 
some people zoom in on one part of it, mm. and some people zoom out and do the whole thing. So I've been playing with some backlog still lifes from their site, and I'm really eager for this week's, which maybe it's every two weeks. They have, I don't know, maybe 65 weeks worth of photos there. So if you're looking for still life inspiration, that's a great place to go. And I'm thinking about my Christmas card, which is generally some elaborate ordeal. Last year it was a calendar. (laughs) And the years prior to that were chapbooks that told the story. And I have a story brewing. So I'm feeling pretty darn good. Okay, so on the table, I don't have a ton of stuff this this episode, I think with the last week of summer vacation and then now it's back to school, I've been doing a lot of repeats and sort of not recipe things. I did get to the Summer Palau from East. I don't know if you guys remember this. It's one of the recipes in her books, but she has a spring, summer, fall, winter version of it. And I had made the spring one because that was when we got the book and I've been looking forward to trying them all. Although the winter one probably won't happen because I think it has beets in it. And I'm the only one in my house that has beets. I love beets. I know. Maybe we'll have to make it and share. And share. Anyway, so the summer one had tomatoes and it was delicious. Oh, so it's a rice dish. I guess I should back up a little bit. It sort of reminds me of risotto because it had kind of a creaminess, but it's rice and you cook it with, you know, whatever you're cooking it with, in this case, tomatoes. You ended up finishing it with cashews. You threw a cinnamon stick in there while it was cooking. So the rice is cooking in all these juices and melding in this lovely, lovely way. The spring one had like snap peas and whatnot. Also good. This one didn't scream summer to me, I think because it had the cinnamon in there. But um, it was delicious. And with the cashews and everything, it had a good bit of heartiness. What, What kind of rice are you using for that? I think it was basmati. Mm. Yeah. So that was really good. And I'm, I'm looking forward. The fall one, I think, has squash. That feels appropriate. It will be delicious. When you use cherry tomatoes with this, you know, you're not using super fresh heirloom and they, they're cooking with the rice. So this definitely feels more like in any season almost. And since you're cooking them for a while, I mean, as long as the rice takes to cook, the tomatoes are cooking. I think you maybe even cook the tomatoes down a little bit before. Could oven roast them and like yeah. caramelize those little things and do a combination. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it definitely you're going to be pulling all kinds of flavor. You don't need super fresh summer tomatoes to make this right. a really good dish. Is my point there? Thumbs up on that one. And then I did, and I've made this recipe a bajillion times, but it's my traditional summer cobbler, which I ended up using for my bingo, which we'll talk about later. But I did want to talk about it because I don't know that I've. I definitely haven't talked about it in a while. And I know we've talked about cobblers. And this one... I love a cobbler. Yeah. So this one is interesting because it's almost a cross between a cobbler and a crisp. Okay. It's definitely kind of cobblery, but you don't cut, you don't cut the butter in. So it, it's not as maybe fluffy as a traditional cobbler topping. This is the recipe from Dinner Love Story. Shocking, I know, that I would be talking about one of her recipes. But I think this was her mother-in-law's recipe, so it's old family one. Super easy. You just, you know, dump all your fruit in the pan, add some lemon juice, and then you mix flour and sugar and some cinnamon and, you know, I forget what else. Not much else. So how, why does that make it a 
crisp, not a crisp. Because there is butter. And then... Oh, I just add butter to all of it. (laughs) (laughs) True enough. It doesn't have... So it's not as crumbly. It's more... More cakey. Yes. Okay. But less cakey than my strawberry rhubarb cobbler, which has cream and... Oh, okay. I think baking powder, you know, so it's much more fluffy. This does not have that stuff. So you have your dry ingredients, you mix in an egg, and so then it gets kind of crumb. A and little the bit egg helps it rise too. So it's yeah. got some leavener in it. And that's why it's. And then here. yeah, and then you melt the butter, and pour it over the top. Okay, that's a way too. Yeah, so, there's no wrong way to add butter. No, <laughs> I, I have no problems with it. I think you just get a different result. Right. So it's a little bit simpler, a little bit faster than you know trying to cut the butter in or more on a crisp kind of speed, and it ends up getting a little crispy. So we're having dinner at my parents' with my sister's family, and my parents had just gone on vacation in Oregon and had, like, a berry cobbler for dessert one night when they were out. You know, it's just my parents at home, so they don't normally have cobbler recipes they usually make a lot. So she doesn't really make that. So she asked me if I would make that for dessert, and I was like, yes, I will. And it was delicious, and everybody really liked it and said very nice things about it. So that was good. So if you're looking for super easy, not quite traditional cobbler, but still very delicious, check that one out. The link will be in the show notes. Excellent. How's your table? Well, I wish we had gotten together on this cobbler thing because I borrowed an ice cream machine. Oh, nice. Yes. A friend down the hill was bragging about how her daughter, who's headed off to college, was making ice cream like every other night. And it was probably a good thing she was headed off to college because they were eating ice cream around the clock. And I said, well, when she goes to college, we'd love to borrow that because I've always been curious about these things. You know I have an ice cream maker. Do you have the bowl that you have to put in the freezer and like do the thing? Yeah. I had to have one of those a few years ago when the bowl cracked. And so I'm kind of like... So does she not have that? No, she has the compressor one. Oh. And it is a game changer. Probably don't need to know this. I know. So this monster, I swear, weighs 50 pounds if it weighs an ounce. It is huge. It kind of has to, though, because the motor in it is a monster. It it makes about a pint and a half. This is a Cuisinart 100. (laughs) I had to, I know this because I had to look up the instructions because I had no idea how to use it. You do not have to chill the bowl. Mm. However... I had forgotten that ice cream is still a process. Like, you still have to cook down the sugar and the cream and the vanilla and whatever, and then chill it all before you put it into the thing. Well, you don't have to do a cooked base, but yes. Okay, fine. I mean, that's a whole different debate, which it's, we don't I need didn't, to get into. You know, maybe that was the problem. I didn't love, love the flavor of it, and I blamed the cream because I think it matters. Like the cream is a huge part of it. Yeah. And um, was it just vanilla? What, what was your we flavor? Did, we did vanilla. And then a last minute inspiration was to like shave some chocolate into it and mm. do like a stracciatella. Yeah. Kind of added it a little too late because then the machine was like halt. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Ch- yeah, it was a little bit of a mess. But anyway. It yielded beautiful ice cream. Again, I think that the cream wasn't right. 
the right choice. Hmm. You need to do a cream taste. I want to do it with Strauss or mm. I think we had clover organic and I want to try it with Strauss and see if that makes a difference. But I also have to get this device back to my friend. So my overall impression of it was it doesn't make enough ice cream for my family. Like mm, they are yeah. ice cream beasts. It's pretty obscene. So <laughs> I made, I think I just made maybe a little bit more than a pint. Mm-hmm. And the bowl wasn't totally full. I should have made a recipe in half because that's the capacity of yeah. this thing. I don't know how the mix-ins work outside of something like chocolate or stracciatella, mm-hmm. like how you would put chunky things in because I think these machines are really finicky. Like I would trust the um, KitchenAid to do it because I understand the power. The KitchenAid, mm. I make that thing do all kinds of things. So I I know that device better. And of course I wasn't going to push a borrowed machine to the limit to see, right. can you handle an Oreo? You know, I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so I I had a lot of fun trying it out. And I, I think maybe I will borrow it for a couple more days and try to do one more batch. In fact, I'm mentally adding Strauss to the grocery list right now. So that was a really fun experiment. And like everybody was in on it. And should we take it out yet? And is it ready? And should we put mm-hmm. it in the freezer? And ah, it is um, delicious. I also used, yes, I also used my very special homemade bourbon vanilla extract because I thought, like, now's the time to let it shine, and it kind of overpowered the, Mm. I don't know, I'm curious. Overpowered the chocolate? No, it it just over, you know, you could kind of taste it, Mm. and maybe it just needed to cook down a little bit more, Mm. and that's, but... You or know, maybe you don't like the custard base. Was there an egg in there? Nope. Oh, it wasn't that. Okay. No. I don't like a custard base. I like Oh, so like I've never cooked. I've never, I don't, I mean, I think I've done custard bases, but normally I just, I don't cook it. Okay. I need a no cook recipe then. And maybe I'll just try that tonight, like on the fly. Yeah. So that's been fun. Yeah. But it is taking up valuable counter real estate. I don't yeah. know where I would put this thing. And it is so You have a lot of space. I have a lot of space, but I don't want it sitting out on the counter. And it's really heavy. Mm. So, I don't know. It's not a must-have for me. And there's no way I can go back to the the freezer bowl one until I get, like, a secondary freezer in the garage. Okay, so that was the ice cream. Then I was at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And remember how you told me that they were doing a pop-up milk... Yes. shop at Gotts down at the ferry building. Yes. Well, I saw two guys with this their... This is the... Oh, sorry. This bakery is the in... Christina Tossi yeah. Bakery in New York City. I have the cookbook from way back when, and I uh, I just adore her flavor. Really weird stuff. Really weird but delicious. stuff. But delicious, and I love it, and I'm... The milkshake is at all locations all month. At Gotts? Yeah. Oh, cool. I did not know that. I know because I may have ordered it. (laughs) Well, I ran into two guys who had the milk logo on their shirts and totally cornered them at the grocery store. Wait, so they were at the grocery store? Yeah, they were at my Molly Stones. And I was like, what are you doing here? What's going on? Like, totally nosy. (laughs) And he, he said that they were scouting locations in San Francisco. 
he didn't say if they were scouting retail. That must have been why they were at, because they weren't buying anything. They were just standing there like for a meeting. But he said they were scouting locations in San Francisco and L.A., and and he looked at me kind of chagrined, like, we're probably going to pick L.A. <laughs> so that prompted me to go home and pull out my Milk Street, or not Milk Street, Milk. It's Momofuku's Milk Bar is the name yeah. of the cookbook by Christina Tosi. So I pulled out my Milk cookbook. I have a kid who is obsessed with, this is the longest story for <laughs> There's many parts to it. He's obsessed with corn-flavored chips. Okay. Not corn chips. Oh. They're basically Um. like a corn-flavored Cheeto. Oh, okay. (laughs) In chip form. So the Koreans do a great one Hmm. that's like a turtle chip. And they had them at Costco for a while. And it's layers of corn. Like a bugle? Yeah, but it's sweeter. Okay. Not as salty as a bugle. Okay. And... A little bit softer on the texture. Hmm. Like a corn-flavored Cheeto. Like a corn-flavored Cheeto. Okay. We've been able to get them at a couple different Asian markets. So when I was thumbing through the milk cookbook, I saw a corn cookie. Oh. (laughs) And I thought, I have a kid who's going to love this. Yeah. So I put on the grocery list, oh, I need dried corn powder. So it's that... Freeze-dried corn. I'm like so anim- <laughs> I'm so animatedly talking to Monica right now. This is hilarious. <laughs> freeze-dried corn powder. Sometimes you get them in the salad, like the freeze-dried corn on top of the salad. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's like crunchy and great. Yeah. I love it. But they're kind of expensive. And I haven't seen them in our market. So I wrote down on the list, freeze-dried corn powder and corn flour. And I put on there like no cornmeal... Because my husband was going to the grocery store. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, he went all the way to Rainbow for this stuff and brought me back. Did they have it? Oh, my gosh. And he had. Rainbow is our, like, natural foods, buy in bulk store. Yeah. And they haven't been selling in bulk all COVID. So this is new. yeah, yeah. So he went to Rainbow for me, which is, let's love people. Yeah. Sometimes if I'm baking something, I'll write down, like, I need two cups of heavy cream so that he knows how much to buy. Right. I did not write down amounts. <laughs> he brought home, like, five pounds <laughs> of corn flour, which is super fine and gorgeous. And I needed a quarter of a cup. <laughs> I just think that's hysterical. This is... Did you do this before with something? I'm sure. Somebody ordered something that they needed a tablespoon and they ended up with like a year's <laughs> supply. Oh, yeah. I oh. do this all the time. Well, so, it wasn't you. It was Adam. Yeah, but I didn't also give him any what? guidance. And then the corn, the dried corn powder, the mm-hmm. only thing that they had was the freeze-dried corn that I love on salads. So and that's he, good. It is good, except he handed it to the 15-year-old, and Matthew decided, I'm going to make this corn powder on oh, the no. and, like, crushed all of the beautiful corn on oh. the I had to crush it for the recipe, some, like, a teaspoon uh-huh. of it, you know. Oh, oh gosh. Wow. So fun. I made the corn cookies. They needed to sit in the fridge and sort of 
do their thing. Her recipes, a lot of her recipes call for that, like aging time in the mm-hmm. fridge. Awesome cookie dough. Like as a cookie dough, it was delicious. Mm. <laughs> and then as a cookie, it was also just oh, awesome. I thought you no. were gearing up for like, they were okay. No, they were. They were amazing. I really loved them. I, the teenager, my older son, the one who loves all the corn stuff, he ate them too late at night, and I haven't even gotten a full report from him. Ugh. I know that my younger son, who was on this mission with Adam to get all of this stuff, didn't care for them so, so much. Not his flavor profile. But corn cookies for milk. Excellent. <laughs> okay, then. Oh, gosh. And then Adam made chicken cacciatore, which we, we keep mispronouncing as kitchen cacciatore. <laughs> I don't know why. So he made a recipe straight out of, (laughs) I'm sorry, that was straight off the internet. We (laughs) looked through a couple cookbooks and nobody had like the classic one that he was looking Mm. for. Um, So he found one on the internet and it was really lovely. Cool. He needed a little assistance here and there, but a little white wine reduction and canned tomatoes. It It was kind of a classic it did call for some salt cured olives that i think would have sent it Mm, soaring in a good way did need a little bit of seasoning at the end so we resurrected that like remember old italian restaurants you could get kitchen Mm. kitchen (laughs) chicken cacciatore like that was a staple menu item and i just appreciate anytime anybody else cooks dinner yeah for sure And then last night, I invented little flatbread, not really a pizza, more just like a flatbread. We had this artichoke walnut bruschetta Mm. sauce or dip in the pantry from that great, you know, down in Pescadero, there's that market that sells the artichoke bread. Mm -hmm. It's right in the center of Pescadero. And they also do... I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes because everybody needs to know if you're local (laughs) to the Bay Area, this is excellent. They also do an excellent truffle mustard there, and they do like lots of wonderful food items. So flatbread, just which is pitas that we had that I was trying to use up with the walnut artichoke. It's basically a pesto, like a red Mm -hmm. pesto. And then... I did artichoke hearts in water that I just drained and sliced them up, put them on top with some white beans and goat cheese and a little bit of olive oil. And it was a really satisfying, quick dinner. That sounds yummy. Yeah. It came out great. Nice. So that was just off the top of my head because I was looking at my pantry like, huh. Somebody forgot to go shopping. (laughs) Well, it was more like... We had anticipated that it was going to be like a kid dinner, and my husband was traveling, and he came mm. home early, and I... Rude. <laughs> I know. I don't know what I have to feed you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but that that turned out great, and it was fun. Nice. And I used a pantry item that needed to... Yeah. You know, it's always good to... That is a win. So that is my table. Cool. All right. On the nightstand. I'm not going to say that I have a lot of books because I always say that they are, I will say several of them, very short, like a hundred pages. So that helps in the 
speed round. Also, lots of mysteries. I'm not sure my cue got kind of random and, or I guess not random. I don't know what I was going through that I was like, time to read the mysteries. Okay. But there we are. No Louise Penny, though. I've been listening to number 13, I guess, but it's been slow going. Not, I just haven't had as much time I've been doing other things. So anyway, books. First one. I mentioned this one last time. The Declaration of the Rights of Magicians by H.J. Perry. And I hadn't realized until after I read this that I read her first book, which I really enjoyed. That one was about two brothers who live in New Zealand, and one of them can make characters from books come to life, and things go screwy. That's fun. It was super fun. I really enjoyed that one. This one, I did not enjoy as much. Mm -hmm. I really liked the setup. I had said it was taking place during the Napoleonic Wars. It's actually the French Revolution, but it's a series, so they're going to get to the Napoleonic Wars. So, French Revolution... But there's magic. And (laughs) so there's kind of three main characters. You get Robespierre, who's the guy who's in charge of the terror during the French Revolution. William Pitt Jr., who is the prime minister of England, who was, I don't know if he was the youngest one, definitely down there. He became prime minister when he was 24, which is crazy pants. And then there's... Is that even legal? (laughs) Apparently. I mean, it was the 1700s. No, it's the 1700s. It's for real, though. That was for real, yeah. His what were they thinking? Nepotism. Ah. But apparently he did very great. And then there is also an enslaved woman in Jamaica, and she ends up escaping and taking part in Toussaint Louverture's revolution in Saint-Dominique. And so the, the thing with the magic, it kind of parallels the rights of man and sort of parts of the goals of the French Revolution, only, at least in Europe, only the nobility are allowed to use their magic. Commoners are not really supposed to have it. That's why they're the commoners. But every once in a while it pops up and they go to prison if they use it. So you've got these kind of two parallel plots going along of rights for magicians and rights for people in general. Well, rights for men, let's be real here. Voting rights and property. And then there's uh, one of Pitt's good friends was very active in the abolition of the slave trade and slavery in general. Um, So all these things are going on. And there is like a dark, dark lord in the background. And so what I I found, like I love the setup, it was really cool, but I felt like she didn't go far enough. There wasn't, there wasn't anything new. It didn't change how I looked at Robespierre or, you know, what the British crown was doing at the time. There was no new, new vision. And I feel like if you're going to do that with historical fiction, there needs even magical historical fiction, there needs to be a new point of view. And having a vampire king pulling all the strings, like that, that's not that exciting for me. So it was cool. I definitely liked the part in the Caribbean, because you don't usually see that part of history. So that was really interesting, but not my favorite. But it was really well written. Her characters are really believable. I guess they are historical people, but they're characters too. So yeah. So that one was kind of interesting. And then this was one of my short ones, still back in the day. This one was written in 1917. Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Helen McGill is almost 40, and she's been kind of the housekeeper for her brother. They bought a farm 15 years ago and moved out to the country on Long Island from New York. So he was going to be a farmer, but he ended up becoming kind of a modern, modern day Thoreau and writing all these books about country living. 
So now that's sort of his thing, and he keeps taking off and going about the country, experiencing the country, and she's still at the farm, baking bread and looking after the chickens, which is fine. She doesn't have to be a governess anymore, so she's kind of okay with it. Until one day, this basically a bookmobile pulls up in front of her house, and the guy says, hey, I'm looking to retire. It's been really great, but I think your brother would be a great person to take over. Can I talk with him and see if he's interested? And she says he's not home, and heck no, he is not taking off on another adventure, leaving me stuck at home. The weather vane still needs to be fixed. I'm going to buy this. I've been saving up to buy a car. I'm going to buy the bookmobile, and I will go on an adventure, and we will see what he thinks about that. (laughs) And so she takes off. Shenanigans definitely (laughs) ensue. It's really sweet. Parts of it are a little like, "Mm, yeah, this was written in 1917, but overall, very cute. And there's books. I mean... They're traveling around talking about how awesome books are and everybody needs access to books. So can't argue with that. And I think there's a sequel. So I have to check on that. That's Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. And then we jump way ahead in time. Gods, Monsters, and the Lucky Peach by Kelly Robson. Also really short. So this takes place in the not-so-distant future. Climate Change has gotten out of control. Humanity had to move underground for a while, but they are now back. (laughs) This sounds about right. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's very realistic. So they've come back above ground, or not everyone has, but there are communities that are trying to reinvigorate the earth. So our heroine is a specialist in rivers, so trying to basically restart the rivers. Anyway, they have also invented time travel. And so a plan is being put together to go back to like 2500 BCE and study the Tigris and Euphrates Mm -hmm. and learn about rivers that way and then come back and apply what they know. Things do not go well. So, I mean, there has to be some sort of drama in a book for it to, to go well. This one was really cool. It goes kind of back and forth between the two different times. It's told from a couple different viewpoints. People have evolved in a lot of ways that you you personally might not have imagined. I certainly didn't imagine it. That's why I'm not an author. But Kelly Robson did a good job. So it's really cool. Again, it's a pretty quick read. Really interesting. So that one was definitely a thumbs up. And then, as I said, slew of mysteries. Starting off with the number one ladies detective agency by your dude, Alexander McCall Smith. (laughs) Scotsman. No, well, yes, but he grew up in Zimbabwe. Really? Yeah. Because I was like, how is he writing all of this? He has this whole series taking place in Botswana. What does he even know? Well, he grew up in Zimbabwe and taught law at the University of Botswana. Oh, my gosh. So he does, I guess, actually know what he's talking about. I've only read the story that takes place in Edinburgh. Yeah. So I think, well, this is the only one I've read of his. It sounds like it's a very similar plot process and the episodic yeah yeah exactly and sort of light but also not with threads that continue through and yeah Yeah. he's really good at that yeah so yeah which i don't know wasn't i guess you had said that but i until you've read it 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 was not what i was expecting i was expecting one like like the louise penny there's kind of one big mystery through the whole thing this is definitely not that there is one mystery that lasts a little bit longer, but mostly it's episodic. The story focuses on Ma Ramotswe, who um, her father has recently passed away, 
and she inherited his cattle, which he wanted her to sell and start a business. What he did not expect is that she would start a detective agency. It's the only one run by a woman. She figures she's really good at paying attention to things and talking to people, and so this is what she's going to do. And it ends up working working out quite well. So you get both these little, you know, they're not mysteries, they're detective things. Someone thinks their husband's cheating. Someone thinks the wife is cheating. Where did this $200 go? You know, so these cute little things. But then you also get her story, her father's story. There's definitely some really hard events going on in there. It is not all happy and yeah. lovely. But it was very, it was very sweet. It was, again, not what I was expecting. There's some beautiful descriptions of the country. I mean, you can tell that's his homeland. That's where he grew up. Just really nice writing about the desert and the, the towns, you know, and just the people. And so that part I really enjoyed. But I would say, yeah, content warning for domestic violence and snakes. You don't like snakes. There's a lot of snakes. Don't read that. <laughs> really big honking poisonous snakes. Do you uh, not like snakes? I mostly don't like spiders. I really don't like spiders. Yeah. Spiders would have been a very much a no-go. Anytime they go anywhere, there's a possibility of snakes. I see. Like black mambas and stuff. Okay. So I can read about it, but it still kind of creeps me out. So that will not be the illustration for <laughs> the next podcast episode. Uh, I don't particularly want to draw snakes. So no. Okay. We're good. Yeah, no, we're good. Uh, then my next one was another fun little one, a Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, which is the first in a series. Our detectives are four retirees that live in a retirement village. The Thursday Murder Club is one of the many clubs at this village. Like everyone has, you know, kind of their own house, but then there's a community center with the pool and the restaurant and, you know, there's trips in the van into town. It takes place in England. And so they've started a group and on the official schedule... It is listed as uh, an exploration of Japanese opera, which has apparently ensures that nobody else will come to in, to murder to their to their meeting. So it's founded by two women. One was a police officer. One was uh, a spy. <laughs> she was basically a James Bond and is always dropping little things into conversation, <laughs> even though she's not supposed to talk about it, which she also talks about. Uh, the two of them started it because the policewoman had all these old old cold cases that were never solved. That's why they're cold cases. Um, so the two of them would get together and talk about them and see if they couldn't figure them out. Kind of, you know, not for any official purposes, but just for their own satisfaction. And there's two guys that are in it as well. And the policewoman has since had a stroke and is in the hospital. So they invite another woman and she's kind of narrating the story. They invite her because she was a nurse to be part of the club. So everyone has kind of a specialty. So they get together to solve these these cold cases. But then there's an actual body in the neighborhood. Uh, so they start investigating this. And it's all, all pretty lighthearted. There are bodies everywhere turning up right and left. There are skeletons turning up. There are mysteries. There are so many suspects. Are they in three pines? <laughs> uh, more or less. I mean, I don't think these people are moving. So then there's at least three books. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. So it was cute, you know, and you get a lot... <laughs> I know. Murder Club. It was cute. It was adorable. <laughs> and it was. There's the two police detectives that have a whole, you know, cute relationship going on with the the old people, you know, and, and you get the whole nobody takes us seriously. Nobody wants to talk to us, but we know things because we have a lot of experience. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. And there's the whole the whole technology divide. 
which I think he pushes a little bit hard on. Like this was this one came out three or four years ago, and these people are in their mostly in their eighties. Yeah. Some are in the kind of in their seventies. But like my parents know about GPS. Like there's a whole scene where they don't know about GPS, or one of them does, so he is messing with the other ones because they don't. I'm like, my parents were using MapQuest, you know, 20 years ago. These people would have known how to use GPS. Anyway, other than that, very adorable. And that one is part of a series. So I probably, I'm not going to rush to read the next ones, but yeah, if I was like at a vacation home, it was on the shelf, I would totally pick it up. Pretty fun. So then my final one is Leave the World Behind by Alain Rouman. Oh my gosh. Love this one. Super creepy, suspenseful. Probably not the best choice to read during a global pandemic because it is pre-apocalyptic, I guess. <laughs> and you can see how things are, are going to go down, but they're not quite there yet. And it feels very, very familiar. So anyway, this one came out, I think, late last year and had a ton of press. So it had been on my list. And then I heard lots of good things about it. And then recently I've been hearing people who don't like it. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground you either like really don't like it or you really love it. It's like, oh, I definitely need to read this because I thought it sounded really cool. So the setup is there's a nice white family from Brooklyn. It's their summer vacations. They've rented a house in the Hamptons, but not the fancy on the beach Hamptons. Like they're a little bit off the beach, but still pretty close, close to the town, but not right in it, kind of away. They have a pool and a hot tub and air conditioning and a lovely. It's fab. Yeah. Yeah. Still great. But set off on its own. There for about two days. Everything's going well. It's late at night. The kids are in bed. Kids are like 16 and 13. And there's a knock at the door. They're like, what? You know, like nobody is nearby. What's going on? They open the door and it's this older black couple, like 60s. And they say, hey, sorry to bother you, but this is our house. And we normally live in Manhattan, but there's a black out there. And we thought it'd be better for us to be out here can we come stay in our house? <laughs> so goes on from there. And you think you know, you think you know where it's gonna go. And it sort of does, but it also really doesn't. I had to put this down with like 30 pages left one night because it was too much. I knew if I read the whole thing, I would not be able to go to sleep. Because it was just so scary. Scare not it's not scary. It's definitely not gory. Well, it's psychological. It's yeah, psychological it's thriller. Yeah. yeah, no. So <laughs> it was. It was really cool. If you cannot live with ambiguity, then you shouldn't read it. That I think is why people don't like it. Uh, it asks a lot of questions and doesn't provide a ton of answers, which I love. I think that's great in a book. It doesn't always work, though. Does it work in True. this? In this one, I think it works. Okay. Yeah, I think there's enough. There's enough information. It's I love not, your expression. Yeah. You're still thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Creepiness aside. And he has a bunch of other books out, so I'm kind of... Oh, that's always fun. Kind of interested. In yeah. And I think they're all one-offs, so mm-hmm. that's exciting, too, because I have so many series. Yeah, you do. Yeah. It's tough. All right. Okay. My series, yes. my books, I have three for you. Cool. Book three... Of Inspector Gamache. Yes. The Cruelest Month. This is one that takes place during April. Mm, yeah. In Three Pines. I lived in Vermont, so yeah. Yeah. I lived in New England, so. Yeah. So we're back in Three Pines, and this scenario we learn 
a lot more about what's going on with the inspector and his family and his team and like why there's tension with him and the department. And that's satisfying because that was really looming over book two for me. I don't know that I totally buy into this one explanation for one of his team members being a complete pill for three whole books, but I'm here for the long haul, Louise, so onwards. I I do love the characters of this town, but I felt like this one had, and this sounds so weird because I normally, maybe because it was audiobook that I picked up on it, Mm -hmm. there were lots of negative comments about women's bodies. It is somewhat relevant to the overall mystery of the book, but I felt like... Who dies in this one? This is the one, the two women are friends and they live together and the daughter comes home from college and oh. one of the women, they it starts off with a seance. Right, okay. Okay, and so the... I don't even want to, I don't want to spoil the forensic analysis of this book, but even that plays into the body image stuff. I felt like for that part of it, it was relevant, but there's kind of nasty comments about other people and it's always the women. So I, I don't, I don't know why that stuck with me in this episode of Inspector Gamache's. It's never his observation. It's always in like the third person narrator. Mm-hmm. It's my I'm nitpicking. I love this series and I have to wait for book four because I'd have to get this new app or something. I don't I know. have to get Hoopla. It's oh, tech. We will do it after the episode. Okay. Then I read Dune. Oh that totally counts. And I enjoyed I, it. Oh, interesting. Say more. I have not read it. We have it sitting upstairs. This is a sentence I never, ever thought I would say out loud. Dune is one of my husband's favorite books. And he has been encouraging me to read Dune for our entire together life, which is a long time. More than a few years. More than a few years. And I have tried to read Dune, I think, three times. Mm. Historically tried. And never, ever cared about it. When we were driving home from San Luis Obispo a couple weeks ago, he put on a podcast where these two guys were passionately talking about Dune and the world of Dune and all the characters of Dune and what was going to happen and who was connected to who. There was a lot of swearing. I loved hearing these two guys passionately discuss Dune. And it was really funny to see my husband interacting with these podcasters. I really hope that some of you are talking back at us in your cars <laughs> and while you're folding laundry and whatever, the way that my husband was like, no way, you forgot about la la la, you know, with the Dune characters. My husband is a complete Dune nerd. He knows it inside and out. Although he says he's only read it three or four times. I can't believe it. It's a complicated world. Anyway, I've only read book one. Apparently, there are like six or seven in the series. I don't know. The first one's a brick. The first one is a brick, and three quarters of it 
are pretty intense world building. Mm. So I should say the reason why I picked Dune back up is because there's a movie coming out this winter. There's an old movie from like 1984. And then the remake is coming out this winter. Science fiction is big in my house and, and everybody is pretty excited about this movie release. And so I thought I should give it one more try and otherwise step aside. So that is why I returned to this book that has foiled me historically. Okay, so there's like two planets in this book that are key. And this family has to go from this really lush green planet. They're filming it in Norway. So lush, lots of water, it rains a lot. Dramatic variety of landscape. They've been asked by the emperor to go to this planet called Arrakis or Dune, which that part of the movie is being filmed in Jordan. Hmm. So desert, there is no water anywhere on the surface of this planet. The reason why the emperor is asking this family to go there, he wants them to be in charge of this thing that they harvest there called spice, which is basically fungus that comes out of the sand. And I'm rolling my eyes at this because the book doesn't do a great job of describing or making spice compelling, except that it's kind of addictive. But if you go to Wikipedia and you look all of this up online, you realize that Frank Herbert was writing this during the time of like the, uh, when they were really testing the psychosyllabin, the, all the mm. mushroom stuff before it got shut down by the Nixon administration. I am now a dune nerd. Oh, oh my goodness. God. I feel like I am not going to do the book justice because where it really picks up momentum is when you realize it's not just geopolitical stuff. There is like backstabbing and generations worth of conflict and secrets and so it's all really interesting but you do kind of have to stick with it to get Mm -hmm. through the world building so were you just not willing to stick with it before i think i didn't understand the trajectory of Mm -hmm. the book and you know and part of it was always adam saying like well wait till you get to Dune 2 or whatever that was called. I don't know. Well, and I wasn't... Number two. You're right. Yeah. I, I needed there to be some payoff, even though I knew people have said, you know, there's strong women characters. I'm not even getting to any of the plot of this book. It's like Game of Thrones where it's 800 pages, but it's really the only last 100 where anything happens. Kind of. But there are so many keys in that first... Mm. 600 pages that you need to pay attention to and thankfully you know i can just turn to my husband and be like what is this Bene Gesserit? how do you pronounce that and i think he enjoyed my reading of the book almost as much as i did and i feel like when i had finished reading it and i can't even talk about the ending really it's it's not really a cliffhanger it's like the middle it's we're just Mm. getting started And then we were, Adam and I were talking for days about this imaginary world that Frank Herbert created and what do they do for food and how does this water system work? I had such fun reading Dune and I can't believe I am saying that. And I really deserve Wife of the Year Award for having read this whole book. (laughs) 
Well done. And you. I recommend you pick it up. Okay. Especially because the movie's coming and out. Should I read it as well? You should probably read it, or at, la- at least the last hundred Not pages. Not just pick it up. Smarty cool. fans. Ha. Then, talk about shifting gears. Holy catfish. Then I picked up One, Two, Three by Lori Frankel. Lori Frankel wrote This Is The Way It Always Is, which is about a transgender child in mm. Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. So this book is called One, Two, Three, and it's about a set of triplets who are 16 years old, and their names are Mab, Monday, and Mirabelle. The triplets are born to a mother and father who live in a town that's been affected by environmental pollution. Their father dies very early on, or maybe even before they're born, of cancer. And when the girls are born, Mab, there doesn't seem to be any effect of the pollution on her. Monday is a more sensitive child and has some challenges with people getting too close and germs and and then Mirabelle is wheelchair bound and cannot speak and has full cognitive capacity because of the environmental pollution. They each have like some kind of effect from this. And then they're triplets, so they're super close and can really read each other's energy and emotions. And this all comes together in their town when the company who originally poisoned their water supply tries to reopen the plant. Almost everyone in town has been affected by this chemical poisoning. And it's how they're all dealing with it in different ways. Some people don't want to talk about it. There's some people who want to battle this company until the ends of the earth. The town has made tons of accommodations. Like there's ramps, there's wide hallways everywhere. I'm fumbling with my language around this because I know that different communities like different language. And I wish I could have a conversation with Lori Frankel about how I should probably listen to some interviews about how she talks about it because they never say that Mirabelle is disabled. She just is in a wheelchair, you know, Mm -hmm. that they never talk about her as a disabled person, but there have been physical consequences because of this environmental poisoning. And I think that what I what I loved about it was how the town sees tremendous value in these three individuals on their own merits. Monday, when they close the library, Monday takes all of the books back to their little house and she appoints herself librarian because she has that kind of brain. She's read all the books. She's memorized it all. You know, the town knows that she's the librarian, so they just go to her. And then Mirabelle she has, there's a guy in town who helps with her voice and that's with a capital V because she can't speak. She has an electronic voice module that helps her communicate with people. And everyone is really patient while she types in. And it just makes me think I need to learn how to communicate about this better. Like we can all do better in that department, but I also realize that every community 
has a certain language for how they like to refer to themselves, and that's a perfectly acceptable question to ask. So this book has me thinking about entirely different things in terms of people with disability. Yeah, well, and it kind of sounds, and I haven't read the book, but that part of her point is it's not that they're disabled, it's that society does not accommodate them. Yeah. They, that we both society, have corrective lenses, right? Like right. that is technically a disability, but society accommodates that. We, right. We make effort for it. So if it's um, the community makes use... it work for everyone, then it's not, right. it's just yeah. how you are you. It's not. She does use ableist, you know, as a, mm-hmm. an adjective at one point in the book. And I love that it's challenging me to think about how to express even this book that I just read, how to express it better. Right. Cool. Yeah. Now I have something else to add to my list. Gosh darn it. <laughs> All right. We have been chatting, but we still need to talk about bingo which will end on September 6th, which is coming up pretty soon. Hello, this is Editing Monica, and I finally checked a calendar. So our next episode, we will be announcing the winners of our Summer Bingo 2021. So you have until Monday, September 6th to finish up and post your entries. And then on the episode that comes out Wednesday, September 8th, we will be making the announcement of our winner. Uh, So just remember, if you get a blackout, you can post that as well and get a second entry. So finish up those bingo squares and post your photo of your completed bingo with the hashtag CCRR, Summer Bingo 2021 to Instagram or on the Ravelry thread. Penny Gale has been going great guns, I will say. She read a borrowed book, which was One Last Stop, which I love that book too she did a new technique of dyeing jeans and yeah i guess they were not a very attractive in her mind gray so she did an over dye of blue and now is super excited i was very impressed with that and then a book recommended by me which was hamnet i still have to read that so good my book my school book club is reading it um, this year so yeah yes you need to read that one and then J.R. Carl 515 has done two as well. Finished a project, which was her Nutmeg the Gnome, which is a Imagine Landscapes pattern and is adorable. And tried a new spice, Zatar, which that's a good one. And she posted pictures of these two delicious looking flatbreads. One had feta and tomatoes and oh, it looked really good. The Zatar was uh, new to me when we started cooking from the Tuesday night. Christopher Kimball yes. cookbook, The Milk Street. Yes. But I appreciate that. Yeah. It's a great flavor it's profile. So then for me, I made a double batch. The cobbler that I made was I doubled it and shared it with my family, which is slightly, slightly off, but I'm going to count it. Then I doubled up on my borrowed book and one that everyone has read and stole my mom's copy of The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. Excellent. And then I, I finally have a bingo. Actually, I got two. Bravo. So it, was, it was great. Because I realized I didn't talk about it, but the, the post, uh, share something that you've made, display something, like I'm always posting on Instagram. So that's that works. So there's nothing in, not one specific one for that. But So that was exciting. How about you? Well, I know that there's a couple different ways to say that. 
read something by or about a person with a disability. And some people, this goes back to the language thing, some people prefer disabled person versus person with a disability. I've seen lots of different argument there, but I think the point is more to read deeply in these things. And I'm counting the one, two, three by Laurie Frankel for that. My read an award winner was Dune because it won the 1966 Nebula Award for Best Novel. Oh, my new technique was I used a different background technique on a still life with Mm. the ink tense blocks. And for art folks, I'll put a link to that in in my notes because I know we all love an excuse to buy an art supply. And then for the double batch and share, I made oatmeal chocolate chip cookies. Mm. I took them to a sophomore class get together before we went back to school. So I have one, two, three bingos. Nice. I'm getting there. The rest are mostly cooking related. I still need to do my taste test. Can't believe I Oh, that's that. such a fun one. I know. I just keep pondering what it's going to be and I haven't made any decisions. So I need to get on that. Until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.